Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We are going to start today with a look at inflation and whether it's what's causing all these price surges we're seeing all over our economy. But then we're going to meet two new mayors here in Metro Detroit. Yesterday's elections produced the first Arab-American and first Muslim mayor of Dearborn and a new mayor in Oakland County seat, Pontiac. We're going to talk with both about their wins and their plans for leading their cities. That's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad that you have decided to join us. It is the day after Election Day here in Southeast Michigan, and a little later in the program, we're going to talk with two people who won big mayoral races yesterday. First, we'll hear from State Rep Abdullah Hamoud, who will be the soon will be the first ever Arab American mayor of the city of Dearborn, a really historic milestone happening in that city. Then we're going to hear from former State House Democratic leader Tim Grimal, who will be the new mayor of Pontiac. You're going to want to stay tuned to both those conversations. We're going to talk about not only the candidates' wins, but their agendas for those two really pivotal cities in our region. But up first, in case you haven't noticed, inflation is hot again, and it's very much in the news cycle. The combination of federal stimulus packages issued to jumpstart the economy, increasing prices, and supply chain shortages have got some people on both the left and the right afraid of the idea of runaway inflation. And in case you haven't been to the grocery store lately, uh, let me tell you that the sticker shock that you are having uh, from basic items, bread, meat, milk, all of these things, uh, they are much more expensive right now than they have been in recent memory. Now, inflation is something that was last seen rearing its ugly head in full force when oil prices spiked in the American economy in the 1970s. And it has long been a boogeyman, scaring some of those who want to spend more, heat up the economy, and help employ people in the millions. And today, similar problems have been plaguing policymakers wanting to use the public purse to spend on everything from infrastructure to climate change defense and paid family leave. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin has said that he's not going to vote to pass the previously iterated $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill, in part because he's concerned about inflation. While the Federal Reserve and a lot of economists believe aggregate inflation levels that currently have breached 5% are temporary, Others are just not so sure. Economist Larry Summers, the former director of the National Economic Council under President Obama, believes the Fed needs to pull back its asset-buying strategy and raise interest rates to disincentivize spending, ultimately tempering rising inflation. But that belief is also very much in contention, as is what truly caused inflation to reach almost 20% decades ago. So that all leaves us with some pretty important questions. What is inflation? What causes it to rise? When does it disrupt the economy? And when should we really be concerned about it? And maybe most importantly, is inflation even the right word for what we're seeing in the economy right now? Is that what is explaining these high prices that we're all paying for so many different things that we used to be able to get for a lot less money? And if it's not, what is it? Is it something different, a more complicated result of the pandemic and the other disruptions to our lives? That is where we start the conversation today. And we've got someone really focused on this issue with us to try to help us sort it out. Lisa Cook is a professor of economics and international relations at Michigan State University. Lisa, 
Welcome to Detroit Today. It is my pleasure to be here. So let's start here. What do you make of all the talk right now about inflation? And is that what explains all of the high prices that we're seeing that are really putting pressure on middle class and lower class families? I think just to keep uh, just to keep things going, uh, how afraid do you think we should be of the idea of this being inflation? So thank you for that question. I think it's a really great and timely one. I would certainly say that we're seeing inflation. I'm seeing my grocery bill go up uh, just like everybody else. And uh, it is uh, undeniable that we are seeing the rate of increase in prices, the definition of inflation, uh, go, go up for consumers. Now, the rate of increase has has slowed if you uh, take out uh, food and energy, which are the most uh, the most volatile parts of the uh, consumer price index. Um, this is this is an this is a traditional uh, problem of uh, this kind of volatility. But it doesn't mean that the pain is less. <laughs> that, that doesn't change. That doesn't change uh, the grocery bill that I see uh, every week. But I would say that we really do have to think about what is happening in a different way. I would prefer to call what is happening supply disruptions hmm. because this economy is still being run by the pandemic. If, if there were no pandemic, we wouldn't be talking about this. We would still be worrying, the Fed would still be worrying about hitting a 2% inflation target, which it only did once or twice in the last decade before the pandemic. Hmm. So what we were worried about before the pandemic was deflation, not inflation, but deflation. And that's largely where consumers' expectations are, that, the, that there won't be much inflation in the economy. And because of that frame of reference, this is a big shock. Now, all of it is not showing up in prices, as you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, just as was the case in the beginning of the pandemic, we saw supply limitations. We saw limitations on the number of rolls of toilet paper or uh, paper towels you could get. Uh, and the same is true here. There's rationing of, of output. Uh, there aren't that many cars. There's low inventory. There are long waiting periods. And for, for lots of different things, things that you wouldn't expect would be, uh, would, would be uh, affected by the supply chain concerns that we've been discussing. But I would call them more supply chain disruptions because what we see, for example, you'll remember that the price of wood went through the roof mm -hmm. during the mm -hmm. pandemic. And it's coming back down to its normal prices, uh, the, the, the normal prices pre-pandemic. We can expect the same will happen once a lot of these bottlenecks get cleared up. Well, you know, we're finding out a lot about ports these days because of what's happening in the port of Los Angeles. Yeah. Uh, but I've, I've looked at ports for a long time. I've been in, interested in infrastructure for a long time, uh, honestly, more in uh, developing countries and emerging markets than in the United States, but the same principles apply. So, when I, I look at ports in other countries, one thing that I look at is the time to clear uh, customs or the time to get your goods from the port. And to see the kinds of policies we've uh, that ports have had in place, and I mean, that's one thing, that's a whole uh, policies and practices that we should uh, look at, uh, but that's a separate issue from there not being enough workers because um, they were sick or they didn't get uh, they didn't get enough paid leave or sick leave to take care of loved ones who uh, also might be affected by the pandemic. So so I think that the two two issues that we see at the boards, but let's talk about the policies and practices. We didn't know, for example, that these weren't 24 hour operations. 
in many of the ports that I look at uh, in the emerging markets that I uh, that I study, those are 24-hour seven operations. So they're going all the time. But the other thing is the supply chain hasn't invested in plan B, this just-in-time production that a lot of uh, companies and ports have invested in means that there's no backup plan. So uh, we really caught uh, we we really caught uh, with without a plan B. So I think that those are uh, what I'll say are the the causes behind uh, the kind of inflation that we see. Again, doesn't change the the feeling about inflation, but I think this is. Uh, temporary, but you know, temporary over a longer period. But once these these uh, the plumbing um, gets unstopped, I think the economy should be flowing again in the way it was before. Hmm. So I want to go back a little in history and talk about inflation that was really scary for people uh, in the 1970s. Um, the, 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 mm-hmm. I've seen some people invoke that reference a lot lately. And it, it seems to me that what you're saying suggests that this is really different than what was going on in the 1970s. So so just for a, a few minutes, talk about what is different between what we're experiencing now and what we're experiencing then and why you'd, I mean, you sound pretty optimistic about uh, the, the the near future when this bottleneck gets cleared that that the economy will go back to uh, a, a regular churn and not be so overheated. Uh, talk about why that maybe didn't happen uh, in the 1970s and and what what the again the contrast is. One of the big contrasts is that we don't have the same backdrop that we had before. We don't see, you know, that was a period of stagflation. Um, We don't see slowing uh, growth or slow growth. We see growth, Um, but we also, I mean, inflation happens in a context and the context of inflation in the 1970s was very different from the context that we see today, Mm -hmm. the tools available to fight inflation are very different now than they are, than they were in the 1970s. So let me give you just one, just one factor that, that uh, would give us context for the 1970s, the high uh, prices and interest rates of the 1970s. The, uh, the end of the gold standard in 1971, mm-hmm. unleashed prices, price changes, uh, and inflation in many parts of the world, because this every currency that was uh, a part of the the gold standard system was pegged to gold. So, so you 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 had to do something uh, if you were experiencing inflation in your, uh, economy, typically what we would call an internal, uh, devaluation. But in any case, these prices changed in a way they hadn't been changing before. So that's, that's part of the context. There were a lot of other things changing as, as well. Uh, but we, we don't have the same kind of, uh, context that we, uh, we had then. Uh, we have long ago been unanchored from the gold standard. We've had flexible prices uh, around the world for the most part, certainly with respect to the dollar. And uh, I, I think that gasoline, for example, is not as big a product in the composition of American goods. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so when we see gasoline prices go up, yeah, we, we feel it at the, at the pump. Again, I see these uh, prices changing every, every month, every week uh, right now. But the composition of uh, the, the share of oil in the products we use is, is going down and has gone down over time. So uh, gasoline isn't necessarily, the price of gasoline isn't necessarily the price of oil, isn't necessarily going to carry through in the same way it did before. It used to be a big, big part 
of a uh, big share of the products uh, made and consumed in the United States. Mm. Take, for example, you know, 1970s were the height of uh, polyester. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> where does polyester come from? It comes from oil. <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're not doing that as much. <laughs> so, so, uh, so the, the economy is quite different. And I mentioned that the tools to fight inflation are, are slightly different. Um, you could, Paul Volcker, uh, impose this very, uh, severe, uh, interest rate hike. That's what people typically remember. I remember I was on a Zoom call recently and a colleague said that he had a mortgage that was 19.1%. Uh, and, you know, it's blown away. Right. It's like right. For, for those of us who were not adults during that period and not purchasing houses during that period, that just sounds outrageous. That's like, that's what, what a credit card, even a, an onerous uh, credit card uh, rate would be. A credit card company would charge, uh, so so it seemed very uh, very very high. But I think the expectations and and uh, monetary policy is often based on expectations uh, and not just what we see uh, today, but uh, what we see in the future. Uh, our expectations are pretty anchored. Uh, are are pretty. Uh, they have a, a reference point. And I think it's um, it's it's uh, it's typically around two uh, percent. That might be changing, uh, but what the forecast that I see for inflation expectations has uh, inflation expectations going down in 2022. You know, uh, peaking and going down in in 2022. So I really think that our thoughts, consumers' thoughts about inflation and, and predictions for inflation are are fairly uh, fairly well anchored. And and I think that they see this as uh, an anomaly, as I see it as an anomaly. But, you know, clearly there's a lot that can happen. I don't want to um, say, I, I don't want to sound, um, I mean, I, I want to be uh, optimistic, but I don't want, I'm not oblivious to uh, those charges that um, this may be um, an elongated period of uh, temporary rises. It really depends on what happens to to wages. We don't see uh, wage push inflation like we saw in the 1970s, where uh, wages went up and uh, that fed into other uh, parts of the economy. We don't see those great pressures yet. Uh, you know, again, we see scarcity of workers because of a variety of reasons, including uh, child care, the lack of vaccine for, for children, um, uh, people not being able to go to work because they're taking care of uh, elders or others in the household, uh, be they children or not. There are a lot of other factors that are, or people being sick themselves. Right. So uh, there are a lot of other factors still related to the pandemic that we have to uh, watch out for. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phone's call. Tell us what you think about the high prices that we're seeing at the grocery store and in other places. Uh, tell us how that's affecting uh, your budget, how it's affecting uh, your buying decisions. Uh, but also to give us a call and let us know. If you're worried that uh, there is uh, a tie here to inflation and uh, whether you believe that that is something that will go on for a long time or, as our guest Lisa Cook is saying, uh, that it, it will likely clear once we get the bottleneck of the supply chain uh, cleared in places like uh, the Port of Los Angeles. Uh, again, 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there. And uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, let's go to Anthony in Southwest Detroit. Anthony, what's on your mind today? Well, thank you, Stephen. Yeah, mm -hmm. I wanted to ask your guest. Um, I think the confidence in our currency and there, uh, even further, the issuer of the currency, the U.S. government, and uh, I think it has a lot to do with it. So, in my question, you know, investors invest in U.S. Treasury bonds. Mm -hmm. Are those even yielding positive? results at this point, given the inflation? Hmm. Uh, great question, Anthony. Thanks uh, for the call. Lisa, go ahead. Yes. Yes. It's almost embarrassing 
that foreign investors are, are confident, are so confident in our pledge to pay our bills. The, the returns on treasury, uh, treasury securities are, are historically low, mm-hmm. right? So we, the, the, the returns on those securities are, are historically low. And this is a safe, this is still considered a safe asset. We still consider the pledge, although we have this this debate about the the debt ceiling um, way too often. The rest of the world believes that we keep our word because we have. Because the good faith and credit of the United States rests on our paying our bills. And these aren't bills that we are going to acquire in the future. They're bills we accumulated in the past. Tax breaks that we gave in the past, for example. Mm-hmm. So we, it is the good faith and credit of the United States is still working. Now you'll see small fluctuations, but you know, as a macroeconomist, I typically look at the uh, the the trend, um, the the interest rate, the um, return on treasuries has been falling over time, you know, just over time. It's been seen as a safe, a very safe asset over over decades. Uh, so, you know, if, if we keep paying our bills, there's there's almost uh, nothing we can do about that, that, that this is what investors are looking for, especially in times of uncertainty. Yeah. Uh, during uh, crises, uh, during the financial crisis, during um, the Euro, the eurozone crisis, the uh, the yields on uh, U.S. Treasuries and on other uh, safe assets like uh, uh, German uh, German Treasury bonds, same thing. Very very low, uh, very low interest rates, very low yields. Therefore, uh, and and that's because rather they were thought of as very safe assets. Right. So thanks for the question, but I think we're and, and until we stop paying our bills, and I hope we won't, because <laughs> that's a, that's all we've got. That's a, you know, in, in many ways, that's a, our serious comparative advantage. Uh, we wouldn't be the currency that everybody likes to use around the world right. um, if if we stop uh, upholding our good faith and credit. Yeah. Okay. Dr. Lisa Cook, professor of economics and international relations at Michigan State University. Really great to have you here to help explain all this to our listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to get to yesterday's elections. We're going to hear from State Representative Abdullah Hamoud, who won his election yesterday to become the first ever Arab American and first Muslim mayor of the city of Dearborn. Just stop for a second and think of how momentous that phrase even sounds. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, thanks for tuning in. Despite having one of the largest Arab populations in America, Dearborn has never had an Arab-American mayor. That is, until now. State Representative Abdullah Hamoud won the city's mayoral race in yesterday's elections. And that means he will soon be the first Arab American and the first Muslim to serve in that position. He joins me now to talk about his vision for the job and what this historic moment means for him and for the city of Dearborn. Abdullah Hamoud, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. So first of all, congratulations. Uh, Tell us what you're feeling today, especially as it relates to the history that you're making as the first Arab American and first Muslim mayor of Dearborn. 
I think I'm still digesting what happened last night. Um, it's a lot. It's a lot to take in. Uh, the night became the morning fairly quickly, um, and it was a historic uh, on many fronts and in many firsts. But we never ran to be the first. We ran to be the best. Mm. But I think what it demonstrates more than anything is a name like Abdullah Sen Hamoud uh, is as American as any other. That you need not change who you are. You need not be ridiculed for your faith or ethnicity and feel that you have to conform. Um, to what people believe to be uh, American, um, that you can stay true to your identity. There's nothing that you can't accomplish. Mm. And, and of course, your election marks, in in my opinion, a pretty significant uh, transformation that's been taking place in Dearborn for a really long time. And I don't I don't think it's uh, um, I don't think it's casting uh, aspersions on the moment to note that uh, Dearborn's history has been really difficult when it comes to diversity and inclusion. Uh, it has been a place that many people who were not white have felt excluded for for many, many years. Uh, I wonder if you can talk about what that transition looks and feels like even beyond your win. Dearborn is a different place today than it was, for instance, when I was growing up in southeast Michigan uh, in the 1970s and 80s. Yeah, there are a lot of fundamental issues that need to be addressed. I think that, you know, just in the late 80s, people were talking about the Arab problem. Um, and here we are today. Mm. Um, we have a lot of work ahead of us and none more important than bridging the divide that exists throughout the city, uh, whether it be a cultural, religious, ethnic, uh, geographic. Um, this is an opportunity that I hope to build bridges of understanding because Dearborn is the greatest American city, and we are a rich and vibrant city with many cultures and people of all backgrounds. Um, and I think it could be used as an opportunity to bring us together, to unite as one Dearborn, and serve as an example for the rest of the country. Hmm. So let's talk about what you will do once you become Dearborn's mayor. What are some of the changes that voters might expect with the way that you will approach the job, perhaps compared to... The current mayor, uh, Jack O'Reilly, what, what, what will look different? Um, I, I tend to be a little more hands-on. Throughout this campaign cycle, we met residents at their doorsteps, uh, knocking nearly 100,000 doors over the year. And what I think we need to do is get you know, the administration out of the city hall and into the streets and into the neighborhoods to have conversations with people about the issues impacting them. Um, you know, one of the major concerns that residents have, you know, there's a clock on the wall not a matter of if the next heavy rain is coming. It's a matter of when. And this summer, 20,000 homes experienced uh, some degree of flooding. So that's an issue that's top of mind. We have to put forth bold, innovative proposals, try to tackle this, be it retention basins, rain gardens, um, or other ideas. And we can look to neighboring communities uh, for some of those innovations. Mm. Um, but, but what we do to provide these families the, the peace of mind that when the next heavy rain comes, their livelihoods will not be on the curbside waiting for a dump truck to pick it up. Mm. Um, the, the flooding issue is um, is something that, that apparently has been going on for a really long time in Dearborn, and I have to admit that I didn't necessarily know about the extent of the problems there. Uh, mm. do, do you need uh, big infrastructure improvements or changes in Dearborn to deal with that? And I, I asked this of every local official I talk to right now, if you do, where do you get the money? Uh, these are yeah. very big ticket items. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, undoubtedly a portion of the fix will have to do with rebuilding our crumbling infrastructure. The silver lining is right now we have a unique opportunity with the funds that were delivered through the American Rescue Plan Act through the Build Back Better proposal that's being debated currently as well as the uh, bipartisan infrastructure package, we are going to see historic levels of funding come to states, counties, and cities. And we need to prepare ourselves with the ideas, with the plans, about how we utilize these one-time dollars to put forth long-term fixes that not only uh, fix the problem for our families today, but ensure that these issues don't happen for generations to come. Mm. So we've got some listeners who have really specific questions about what happened last night and what you'll face when you are sworn in as mayor. A listener on Twitter asks how you feel 
about Proposal 1, which failed last night in Dearborn. This was a millage increase to try to avoid some service cuts, I believe. Uh, how, how does that affect your plans as mayor? You know, for many residents in the city of Dearborn, um, the higher property taxes have really been a deterrent for newer and younger families who've been wanting to purchase homes. So I understand why this proposal was voted down. Um, but what it means is that by mid-year next year, we have to, you know, you know, find $15 million in, in savings um, in order for us to continue operating. Mm. We think it'll be challenging, but we're up to that challenge. Um, it's my hopes that we build an administration that is competent and has a trust of the community. And we put forth, uh, put forth bold and innovative plans that ensure that the city will continue to operate and that the city services that the residents have come to expect will not be impacted. But, I mean, how do you do that? If you've got to save $15 million, where do you find that money if it doesn't come out of services? Um, You know, during our run for office, we actually did a deep dive of the city's budget. And we identified many ways where we can incorporate technology and try to provide some of those efficiencies. Now, we, you know, put out our property tax proposal with an understanding that we might have a few years uh, to put forth this plan. So we might have to uh, speed it up a bit. Um, but I think through incorporation of technology, um, through assessing priorities uh, all throughout the city, um, and to trying to find new revenue streams in a shorter timeline, um, I think it's something that uh, we will be able to do. On, I mean, we have to do, um, uh, but it is something that we will be able to do. Hmm. So an, another listener on Twitter asks whether you th- uh, what you think needs to be done to invigorate community and civic engagement in Dearborn and to combat corporate interests from overtaking communities. Uh, what, 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 what is your outlook on how do you, how do you build community in, in Dearborn? You have to engage people and meet them where they are. Um, and that's what we demonstrated in our campaign. You have to give people uh, something to fight for, something to believe in, to inspire them. You know, on this campaign trail, we were the only ones that put out bold, innovative proposals about what we can do collectively. It's not, you know, only in Hamoud that can drive change in the city. No, it takes a collective. It takes everyone. It takes everyone's will to roll up their sleeves, throw on their work boots, and to march forward together because that's how you make change. And so, I think you need to give people something to fight for, um, to believe in, and that's really how you inspire community and civic engagement. Um, you know, hope is far stronger than fear. Hope is far stronger than apathy. Um, and I think that's, that was the message. And, and I think our outcome last night uh, proved that. I'm talking with uh, Abdullah Hamoud, a state representative and now mayor-elect of the city of Dearborn. He will be the first ever Arab-American to hold that position, first Muslim to hold that position. We're talking about his historic win, but we're also talking about his plans uh, to lead the city of Dearborn. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Uh, What questions do you have for Abdullah Hamoud? Uh, Do you think it's a sign of progress that a city like Dearborn, with its history, uh, will now have its first Arab-American leader? Uh, Of course, if you live in Dearborn, we want to hear what issues you hope will be addressed in the next four years and about whether you're optimistic that the next group of city leaders there is going to prioritize those issues and will be equipped to address them. As always, 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation that way. Uh, Before we get to more Listeners, uh, I, I want to talk about uh, WDET's reporting um, uh, during the election. Nargis Rahman uh, talked with Dearborn residents about issues that were most important to them during the race. And one of the things they identified was policing. Uh, they said that police in Dearborn are often not equipped to handle mental health situations and other encounters with residents. Uh, the grassroots organization Accountability for Dearborn wants civilian oversight of the police department. I wonder if you can address public safety uh, and, and how that will look uh, in your administration. You know, certainly. Um, the interesting thing is, in addition to the mayor's election, there was also a city council election, as well as a charter commission. And a charter commission will have the opportunity to revisit, uh, you know, really the city's uh, constitution that gets uh, that's up for on the ballot once every 12 years. And so there'll be opportunities to really see what forward-thinking policies we can put forth. 
from a public safety element, we really want to put forth a model that works better for residents and better for first responders. And mental health is a big portion of this. Um, we believe in mental health crisis response teams. And in Lansing, there's currently a debate uh, surrounding about funding, uh, providing grants available to the local municipalities um, to launch uh, mental health crisis response teams. And we, look, we can look at successful models, the CAHOOTS model out in uh, Eugene, Oregon, um, which has been active since the late 80s, providing uh, residents, mental health professionals to address uh, 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 much in a much better capacity the issues that they're facing. But on the flip side of that is also ensuring that we're providing the mental health resources to first responders. If you look at the data, some of the data is fairly startling, uh, understanding that many first responders lose, uh, more first responders lose their lives to suicide than doing the line of duty. Yeah. So we have to make sure that we have the mental and physical support systems they need in place for themselves as well for their families. Um, second in the city of Dearborn is this issue of speeding and reckless driving. And I think it's an issue that many people face uh, all throughout the state. And so we have a three-part proposal that talks about traffic calming measures, things like you know the addition of bike lanes or speed humps and in key intersections, uh, neighborhood intersections, excuse me. Um, talking about shifting policing uh, away from picketing non-moving violations, which also tends to be where more racial implications are imposed, um, and towards traffic violations impacting your immediate public health. Things like uh, driving under the influence, speeding, reckless driving, things you can visibly identify. Um, and third is trying to have a robust uh, media campaign, working with regional partners and, 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 and local institutions to educate folks on the importance uh, of driving safely. And what that also means for, for your pocket at the end of the day, that if, if you're driving well, but your neighbor's got many tickets and many points and many accidents, that's also impacting your car insurance. Mm. Um, so what we can do to also put some money back into people's pockets. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Nancy in Dearborn. Nancy, what's on your mind? Hi. Good morning. Hello, Stephen. Hi. How are you? And uh, congratulations, new mayor. Um, I live very close to Gulf View, and uh, every day, either at night or sometimes in the afternoon, there is almost like drag racing that goes on both with motorcycles and cars. Golf View is a 25-mile-an-hour speed limit, and I even saw drag racing happening in the middle of an afternoon. Um, I really would love to see more police presence for that. Uh, great issue to, to raise, Nancy, and I, I, I want to say before we ask the mayor-elect to answer that that's, that's an issue that we have in lots of places around southeast Michigan. Uh, I hear uh, people racing around in Detroit quite a bit more than they used to as well. Uh, Abdullah Hamoud, what, what, what's your response to Nancy's concerns here? Uh, firstly, thank you, and, and thank you for that question. You know, I, I live near that neighborhood, and so I, I hear those uh, sounds at night. Um, what we need to do, and, and, and we just, you know, we're speaking to about shifting uh, the priority for policing to really ticket and go after these speeders and reckless drivers, not necessarily those who might have an expired license plate or insurance. We have to shift the resources that are available. Um, secondly, what's also happening in Dearborn is we're kind of bankrolling uh, these multi-billion dollar corporations. What do I mean by that? Um, Walmart, for example, uh, there tends to be many calls uh, to Walmart that pull police officers out of our neighborhoods at key times where these drag racing happens because of crimes of poverty. Uh, somebody steals uh, a T-shirt or, or, or some sort of food that they need to take home, and it takes one or two squad cars out of the neighborhood at key times, um, and, and, and it really lessens who we have in the neighborhood. So that's something that we have to push back on. We shouldn't be there to be personal security guards uh, for a company like Walmart. So we need some bold and innovative plans. One of the ways that we're also going to address this is by pulling together a public safety task force. This is a roundtable of folks who, uh, who are line-level officers, retirees, the city of Dearborn, folks who have worked in the mental health system, folks from the public defender's court, and those key stakeholders throughout the city to come together and have conversations about some of these issues and what we can do collectively to all pitch in to be part of the solution. Okay, uh, again, Abdullah Hamoud, congratulations on your big win yesterday, and we look forward to seeing how uh, your policies and ideas play out in the mayor's office in Dearborn. Thanks so much for joining Thank us. Thank you so much. Okay, we're going to take another break, and when we come back, we're going to talk with another candidate who won a big mayoral race yesterday. Former state House Democratic leader Tim Grimal is going to be the new mayor of Pontiac. We'll talk with him next and take your questions 
and comments for the new mayor in Oakland County's seat. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, thanks for tuning in. Dearborn is not the only city in Metro Detroit that chose a new mayor yesterday. Voters in Pontiac also picked a familiar name in Michigan politics to lead that city for the next four years. Tim Grimal is the former state House Democratic leader and also served on the Oakland County Board of Commissioners, from 2007 to 2012, he beat out the city's former development chief, Alexandria T. Riley, and he joins me now to talk about how he hopes to improve that city as mayor. Tim Grimal, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. Thank you so much for having me on the show. So first of all, congratulations. As uh, I asked Dearborn Mayor-elect Abdullah Hamoud in the last segment, uh, talk about how voters should judge you in your first term as to whether it's a success or not. What are the things that you want to do differently than what we've seen in the past in Pontiac? There are a few key priorities that I I believe residents are are very eager to see in terms of making sure that we're improving basic quality of life and expanding economic opportunity for all Pontiac residents. Number one, we've got to improve basic city services, fixing the roads, plowing the snow on time, taking better care of our parks and our sidewalks, Number two, uh, we desperately need a real youth recreation and youth enrichment program for our community's young people. Uh, A millage was passed three years ago specifically for youth recreation, and the city has collected almost $3 million in revenue since that time. And yet, as we sit here today, we have nothing to show for it. We don't even have a single permanent youth recreation center. Uh, So that's certainly a very high priority for me, but I think for virtually all of Pontiac's residents. Number three, we need to make sure that as we bring investment and jobs to Pontiac, that we connect more Pontiac residents with those jobs and with those economic opportunities. And uh, let's talk about Pontiac over time. I mean, this is a place that I think many leaders in Oakland County have seen as a potential economic engine uh, in in the county. They've touted the, the potential for it to become a much more attractive city for business and visitors and economic growth. But that vision hasn't ever quite panned out. Why, why do you think that's so? And what would you do differently to, to reach more of that potential? The biggest obstacle to really moving Pontiac forward is uh, and has been a discord between the mayor and city council. And that's certainly been going on for many, many years now, but it's gotten much worse in recent years. And all of the priorities that I identified as being key priorities for my administration and for the residents of Pontiac really hinge on making sure that the mayor and city council work collaboratively, that they work collaboratively with one another, and that they work collaboratively with the broader community, residents, uh, local small businesses, civic organizations, the faith community, and other stakeholders. Uh, And so a, a key question is going to be, the working relationship between the mayor and city council. We are going to have an entirely new city council, not a single incumbent was reelected last night. And so this is a new day for Pontiac and we have an opportunity as the mayor and city council to forge a great relationship and to set aside past uh, personal differences that have erupted between the mayor and city council and instead focus on the best interests of residents and finding common ground to move our community forward. I'm talking with Tim Grimal. He is mayor-elect of Pontiac as of yesterday's elections. Uh, he's a former state house Democratic leader and a former member of the Oakland County Commission. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, call and let us know what questions you have. 
for Tim Grimal as he prepares to take over leadership in Pontiac. If you live in Pontiac, give us a sense of your your sense of how things are going and uh, how much of the potential uh, that uh, Pontiac has is being reached uh, because of the leadership that it has. Uh, give us a call and let us know what you would like to see Tim Grimal do differently uh, than former leaders. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work you into the conversation uh, that way. Uh, Tim, I also want to ask you about transit. Uh, we we had a listener on Twitter uh, raise the issue of transit, specifically uh, light rail, the connections between Pontiac and downtown Detroit. Uh, that has, again, long been discussed as a jump starter for economic growth and and connection, of course, in, in Pontiac. Uh, we're not there. And it, it, it always seems like we're just shy of getting there. Uh, what's your take on the transit situation and how would you approach it? I've always been a, a very strong supporter of improved regional mass transit. I think it's critically important, uh, both in terms of people's quality of life, but also, and perhaps even more importantly, in terms of economic development. Uh, and there are two layers to the economic development portion of it. One, one layer is making sure that more people can get to jobs. Uh, and obviously, uh, with today's labor shortage, that's more important than ever, that we're making it easier for particularly low and moderate income workers to actually get to jobs that need workers. And the other layer is that uh, along transit routes, uh, we've seen a lot of economic development occur wherever uh, transit routes have been laid, both uh, here in uh, the Southeast Michigan, but around the country. And so it's a really important economic development catalyst to invest in mass transit. Many people here in Pontiac depend on mass transit. Uh, certainly we need to do more to beef up our current smart bus service, uh, but I certainly support uh, stronger measures, whether that's a rapid bus transit, uh, which has been talked about sort of rolling rapid transit, which is sort of like a, a train on wheels, if you will, that's been tried in a number of, and, and actually implemented with great success in a number of cities around the world, or whether it's actual a light rail. But Pontiac is the other end of Woodward, if you will, from Detroit. And the more that we can invest in linkages along the Woodward Avenue corridor, the better it will be for all the communities along Woodward, including Pontiac, but also for all of Southeast Michigan. Hmm. Uh, there's also been talk of getting rid of the infamous Woodward loop that surrounds downtown Pontiac and finding a way to have Woodward go right through the heart of downtown Instead, I think that has a link to transit, but it also has a link to the feel of Pontiac as a city and, and to the idea of the kind of energy that you might want to create in the city center. It does. And uh, certainly it's a high priority for my administration to finally uh, complete this reconfiguration of the loop. It's been talked about for many, many years, going back over 10 years now. Uh, people have been talking about reconfiguring the loop. Uh, by way of some history, uh, Woodward used to turn into Saginaw Street and come right through downtown Pontiac, which uh, was very beneficial to sustaining downtown businesses. And a decision was made many decades ago to create this one-way uh, giant uh, highway around downtown Pontiac. And, and that had a couple of very damaging effects. Number one, it steered traffic instead of through downtown Pontiac around and away from downtown Pontiac. So it was very damaging to downtown businesses. The other damaging effect is that it's really not pedestrian friendly to have four or five lanes of high speed one-way traffic surrounding the downtown and it cut off downtown Pontiac from the surrounding neighborhoods and has acted as a sort of visual moat uh, that has divided the neighborhoods from downtown. Uh, MDOT has committed to funding almost the entire cost of reconfiguring the loop in downtown Pontiac because uh, M1 Woodward is a state highway. And so this is a great opportunity for us to unite neighborhoods with downtown, create greater connectivity there, 
while actually bringing more traffic through the heart of downtown to support our local downtown businesses. The other thing I would say about that is that uh, we need to do more to make downtown Pontiac a destination again. We used to have uh, arts, beats, and eats. We used to have a fireworks show. We used to have a Mexican festival. We used to have a taste fest. We used to have a Puerto Rican festival. Uh, None of those signature events still exist. And we need to get back to having key signature events that will give Pontiac residents a reason to come to downtown Pontiac and people from throughout Southeast Michigan a reason to come to Pontiac uh, and spend their hard-earned dollars here in our community supporting our local businesses and local workers. And reconfiguring the loop of Pontiac is a key part of making downtown uh, Pontiac a destination again. Okay. Tim Grimal, former state House Democratic leader and now mayor-elect of the city of Pontiac. Congratulations again, and thanks so much for joining us here on Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when NPR's Tim Mack is going to join the show to talk about his new book, Misfire, Inside the Downfall of the NRA. Detroit Today is produced by Jake Neer. Our program director is Joan Isabella. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And our associate producers are Nora Ryan and Sam Corey. Detroit Today's music was created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.